My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. In part one of this two-part interview with the legendary Dave Stewart, who I'm linked up with here, and a man who's been justifiably described as the best all-rounder the UK has ever produced, we tended to concentrate on your early career and the course fishing scene. What I'd like to do now is widen up the debate by exploring your game and saltwater interests. As a fishery owner yourself, I know that game fishing has and still does play a very big part in your angling life. As I see it, this can be split into two subcategories, either still water and running water, or if you like, stocked and wild fish. So what are your specific interests there? Well, I've already said that game fishing was a way of fishing when the course season closed, which back then included still waters as well, including your goldfish bowl, and game fish were mostly killed anyway. We were the first fishery on the test to put all our salmon back, way back in 1990, and I wrote an article then about it for the Trout and Salmon, and already said earlier that it was quoted by a National Rivers Authority at a meeting. Although not strictly game fishing, anglers also fly fish with sea species, and Kay and I have done a fair bit of that ourselves with bonefish and carwai. Mind you, we would upset some when we used to say that we got fed up catching bonefish, so killed some for use as rubby-dubby for our shark fishing. It's obvious what the traction is with salmon. For one thing, as I've already said, it's our largest indigenous fish, and in the old days when they were all killed, we knew that none were caught, and they were all virgin fish because they were killed, so none had been caught previously. That was a tremendous attraction to Kay and I, as salmon and sea trout being migratory, as I've just said, we knew they were all killed. Also being migratory fish, we never knew what was in the rivers of our choice. With coarse fish, one gets to know what is in the water, and had probably already caught some of them before, maybe more than once. Of course, game fish are also very good eating for those that like them. They fight hard, some like to jump, and there are attractive methods of fishing, especially for ladies. Fly or spinning, no live bait like worms and maggots, although my Kay couldn't care less about either baits being sometimes messy. Of course, when we salmon fished when coarse fishing was over, it was for spring fish, which are large fish in the south. Not less than £16 for a few years, I caught um, on the stow, and then a £13 had come along. Looked like a grills, actually, you know what I mean, very, very silver, and, well, the springs are all very silver. I should have said it was very, very slim, with a very forked tail. And a little later on, when we started to use prawns after May the 15th, when that was allowed, because a little bit later in the season, then we started to get the odd ten-pounder as well. They're not so big now, though, on average, but there's always a chance of a big fish but the rivers we fished by the time the coarse season come along, conditions were much more difficult, with tremendous weed growth. And of course, I had a lot less time anyway because of the opening of the coarse season. By then we were also looking forward to tension carp and other fish, so with only one full day off a fortnight we would rather go and catch some fish, not flog it to death hoping for a salmon where they were scarce. Salmon fishing for us wasn't easy in the south of England, as we couldn't afford to fish prime baits, but we did all right, and also fish for trout, of course. Like all fishermen, 
If I think about it, I must have plenty of tales to tell. I told you that I caught a pretty big salmon on the Avon, all 39 pounds of it, but the biggest salmon I ever hooked was in my own bit of river. I saw the fish, so went and got my tackle from the house, chucked a prawn at it, and it took it straight away. It eventually came unhooked after over half hour's play up and down the river. The NRA had banned prawns until later in the season, but as it was a recent and sudden decision, they relented a bit and said I could use the prawn that season as long as I used barbless hooks and returned any fish to the river. After all that time playing the thing, my small barbless treble just worked loose, I guess. I'm pretty certain it would have topped 40 pound. My friend Scott was helping me in the garden that day, and I was pretty certain I knew where it would have dropped down to, a small groin, just downstream. So Scott and I went to sea, and there it was. Bloody hell, said Scott. That's not a salmon, it's a bloody shark. It stayed there for three days, so I thought it was then worth another go. It had gone. <laughs> Sod's law, they say, don't they? Of course. Salmon are notorious for coming unstuck, and the hook hold gives for various reasons, especially as they're not really feeding in fresh water and often only nip at the lure or fly, and so are very lightly hooked. I lost a 30-pound fish through an open swivel, which I think was my fault, and another fish that would have topped 30 pound was lost through a friend misgaffing it. Up in Cumbria, fishing for smaller fish, on the river Ert with my pal John Denman, we went out for a quick go before breakfast as we were going home afterwards. John got two and I got three. Three before breakfast had never been heard of apparently, so I had to send pictures to the hotel. One of the interesting things is the third of those fish. I was fishing with a multiplier, just a single swan shot and a prawn, and casting it out to the fish which I could see under some bushes on the other side, casting upstream above it, and just letting it run down and bounce past it. And it took no notice, so I started counting the number of casts, because I knew it was the last fish I was going to have a go at as we were getting near breakfast. So I started, as I say, I started counting, and I got up to 39 casts when John Denman turned up. You'll have to pack up, mate, he said. It's time to get a breakfast. Okay, I said. I said, I'll just have the last cast, and I was talking to him, and because this 40th cast was a bad cast, as I was talking to him, it ended up halfway across the river instead of um, right across under the bush where this fish was. The <laughs> prawn dropped in the water, the salmon came straight across and took it. Now, can you believe that? It came across the middle of the river and took it, and I couldn't pass it 39 times before that. Who can tell what they think? Anyway, there it is. I mentioned earlier that I lost a pike that I think would have topped £30 on the Avon, but I've had a couple of 28s and stacks of 20s, so although I've never topped 30 who really cares? Maybe I've still time, but I'm not desperately chasing a 30. I like going off to chew and all that caper, so it will have to come when I'm just pike fishing. And at 85 years of age, I'm not only keeping my fingers crossed, I'm also crossing my legs. With salmon, though, the chance of getting a memorable fish nowadays is getting harder for several reasons, one of them being the predation problem. There has always been predation of baby salmon up to smolt size, but on their return from the sea, if they have safely left the seals in the estuary, they are fairly safe, as apart from anglers, 
The only predator capable of tackling them was the otter, and otters were hunted regularly. But we now have the ridiculous situation where otters are a protected species, and I thought salmon were in danger of extinction in some of the rivers where they have introduced otters. The mind boggles. An animal that was looked upon as vermin when I was young is now protected. I think it's down to food. Let me explain. Before the railways and refrigeration, unless one lived near the sea, the only available fish were freshwater fish, so people didn't want otters eating their fish. Can you imagine the monks tolerating otters raiding their fish ponds? Of course not. Now we eat mostly sea fish, and even most of the salmon consumed is bread, and trout of course, which are easy to breed, so there is not the necessity to protect coarse fish and the nice-faced, cuddly-looking otter has been chucked in the public's face without the true story. I've never heard anyone yet on the box state that otters were hunted as vermin, not as lovely creatures, but as destructive vermin. There are so many lies told about the reason for the decline of otters, but never the truth. But, if the authorities were prepared to foot the bill, salmon could be bred in their thousands to stock rivers. I certainly don't agree with authority about genetic integrity, keeping the strain of a particular river pure, as when the stock becomes too low, as is happening in many rivers, certainly in the south, the result will be close breeding, and that's not good. Salmon eggs and fry used to be moved around. In fact, I believe it was the introductions of tay fish eggs or fry that led to the huge fish in southern rivers. Of course, there are other problems like pollution, abstraction and obstruction. With game fish still in mind, the small water sometimes stuffed with huge trout. Salmon too, I believe. That wouldn't be attractive to me. But if you like that sort of thing, why not? But if national big fish records get broken by the practice, it's surely a bit of a nonsense. Then again, a record fish of some species from a stock pond would still be the largest caught in the country. I suppose it could be a record for a wild fish or a stockfish. Difficult to ascertain always in a river. But what I wouldn't like to see is the line strength records, as they have across the pond, where some anglers deliberately fish ultra-fine to get their name in the record books. They probably leave a lot of tackle in fish, which isn't a good practice. I'll stick to the river for game fish, apart from the reservoirs, locks or natural lakes. And I say natural lakes because... I don't know of any lakes that are natural, except of course the, the Great Lakes and all that sort of thing, but nearly every lake I know is either a damned stream or has been dug like the gravel pits for clay or gravel or sand or something. However, I never stock my small length of the river test, but there are plenty of trout and without doubt some come from stockings up and down the river. But in the 37 years I've owned it, we never killed a brown trout, only rainbows. And some of the brown trout have grown pretty huge, and as they are with us for years, I think they'd almost be called wild. They certainly get pretty angry when hooked. I also see them spawning, and doubtless some of the fish we catch have definitely come from spawning here. My greatery fish I have already talked about, which I like, as they are truly wild fish, and generally not been caught before. But with browns and grayling, and also rainbow trout in a few rivers, where there are breeding populations, they certainly have an attraction to some anglers who don't wish to catch farmed fish. 
and often grow to large sizes before they're released in these um, rivers where they've got put and take. So it's all a bit artificial. Although I've discussed salmon at some length, I've caught plenty of sea trout, but they're having problems in some rivers due to salmon farming, I believe. Because the salmon farms are a paradise for sea lice, which then get on to passing migratory fish in their hundreds and often cause the death of many of their hosts. Salmon farms also use chemicals, and the tons of excreta and waste food deposited on the sea floor beneath the cages is not environmentally very friendly. I suppose I'm lucky that we don't have that problem here in the south, not yet, although they're talking about having some fish farms down here in the sea. The Avon gave me three double-figure fish up to my 11.5 pounder in my own river, up to a possible 15 pounder here, and we netted out a dead one that went 16 pounds, so I've still got the chance of a good sea trout. Sticking with the subject of sea trout for a moment, and having already mentioned the British Record Fish Committee looking to address anomalies in the current list, should they not also be looking to amalgamate the brown trout and sea trout as a single inclusion? Salmo Trutter. <laughs> Does the record status really matter? To be absolutely correct, the brown trout and the sea trout could be classed as one for the purposes of records, but as they have evolved over thousands of years into two completely different patterns of life, so that generally sea trout breed sea trout and brown trout breed brown trout, resulting in different habitats in rivers, perhaps there should be some means of recognising this fact when considering record status. Even though they may interbreed, they probably follow the dominant gene in their future lives to become one or the other. Stillwater trout fishing, like certain aspects of stillwater course fishing, probably won't ever come under threat. So long as there are existing larger bodies of water available and a willingness to purposely excavate holes in the ground, with the ability to farm fish as required, their future looks secure. Less so, unfortunately, migratory species, and in particular salmon, where one amongst many potential problems facing the species is that which helps keep the stillwater scene alive. Farming, restocking and genetic integrity. This question has very complicated answers, and as I've already said, salmon farming probably affects sea trout more than salmon. Salmon farming for the table is a totally different concept than would be the production of smolts to help benefit rivers, where the salmon are under the threat of extinction. And I will repeat that in this country, if there was only the interest or the will from the government, there is no doubt that salmon stocks could be improved. But it would cost a lot of money, and the solving of problems would tread on a lot of toes, industry and God knows what else, and some farming. Anyway, I'd love to see it happen, and I've already talked of my love of game fishing and the reasons for migratory fish in particular, and when I talk about our love of salmon, there are of course the Atlantic species here, but there are several species of salmon to catch across the pond, so Kay and I went to Alaska and Canada. But in Canada, we also fished for sturgeon and carp, and I fished the Northwest Territories after lake trout, which I think is really a char. My angling companion on that trip was Don Wheeler, and he copped a 39-pounder. Massive thing. In some ways, I think the future looked bleak for angling with a decline in stocks, and I would think every angler knows the reasons for the decline in some fisheries. Pollution, some obvious, 
But unseen continuous pollution 24-7 from industry, agricultural, industrial and us, the human masses. We too are losing out on our bit of the river test due to the lack of salmon. Although Kay and I loved coarse fish, when our friend who originally owned the river and offered it to us, it was the migratory fish that decided us to buy it. We wanted to catch fish that nobody else had, and that's almost impossible apart from migratory fish, although even that is no longer guaranteed as we all put them back now. Also we have salmon, trout, carp and grayling killed by otters, and we did have a bit of trouble with cormorants at one time, although that doesn't seem a problem now. Then of course there were poachers, but that's not so bad now, as the police are cracking down on that more. Luckily, as we are on a dam wall and well above the river, we don't have trouble with flooding as we control five sluices and three large floodgates. The responsibility of sluices is what Kay considered gave me a small stroke back in 2000, as there was so much rain that it was up night after night opening and closing the dam gates, and one is over 70, it's hard work. The responsibility of that is traumatic, some would say, as if not controlled correctly, many properties could be flooded. I passed on the sluice control to my young friend Scott, along with some land to build a house adjacent to the sluices to run them for me, but he died when only 42. <laughs> His lovely wife did not want to move, so she now runs it with my help, and in the 37 years it's been under my control, along with my friend in the later years, not one property has ever flooded, even though we've had some of the worst floods on record. Last year, 2013, it flooded upstream and downstream, but not one property within the area affected by my gates was flooded. Even though we catch a lot less salmon now, it's still a good mixed fishery, if you aren't after the monsters they catch on some rivers, but many of my friends have had their PBs here, including roach, chub, trout, grayling dace, and my personal best perch of 4-4 was from here. There's a good head of roach with plenty of two-pounders, good roach but no threes, although I and friends like Dave Howes, who's caught a number of threes, reckon we have seen a couple. Some say it's one of the best roach stretches of river in the country, and has had a couple of mentions in books recently. One author described it as the best mixed fishery in the country for a small stretch. Of course, nothing comes easily, and after we bought this stretch of overgrown rough land, we started to tidy up the land and remove the fallen trees, the brambles everywhere. It was really a veritable jungle. We were getting it into shape, and it was starting to show its potential, so the council decided they'd take an interest, and decided they wanted it as a small park. It could take a book if I wanted to tell the whole story but I'll try and give a rough outline of the trouble I had with them, or we had with them really, Kay and I. We bought the land as it was beside the River Test, and when I fished it with a friend's blessing who owned it originally, it had a good head of salmon, and as it was only five minutes' walk from the town, that was also a deciding factor for us to buy it when he suggested it, and we worked damned hard at it with the landscaping, then heard it was going to be taken from us. I went to see the head of planning with Tess Bally Bower Council and said that I was not going to sell it to them and also wanted to eventually build a house beside the river. He said we could build the house so long as we let them have a public footpath. I call that blackmail. So I went to see a solicitor 
and he said that it would be best to wait for a town plan in a couple of years' time, as it would have to be on that. Actually, it was four years before the plan came out, but that gave me stacks of time to learn I, all I could about the council's aims and fight it at the public inquiry that there would be. With the help of a barrister and all the information I had acquired, we really kicked the council's backside. When the solicitor and I went to see the barrister in London, with all the stuff I had collected and my plan of action, the solicitor said to him, he, meaning me of course, has already written the brief. The solicitor and I had become friends by that time, and we still are. Anyway, we won the public inquiry and the right to keep our land and river. We gave the poor planning officers a really rough time as they knew nothing about the river and its problems, such as flood control, fishery maintenance and so on. I had the police on our side, nearly all the local residents, the Testonich and Angling Association, the Romsey and District Association, and my friend the editor of Angling Magazine as a backup of the need to run a fishery with proper knowledge. Having won, I went to see the planning offices and apologised for the rough time we gave them. They were fine and told me they were used to that. Sit down and have a cup of coffee. So when I told them I wanted to build, they couldn't see a problem as they said I'd won the right to keep the land and it was not in the conservation area. They suggested I submitted full plans. The council refused planning, and in the local paper it said they even went against the advice of their planning officers. After a bit of back and forth, we called for a public inquiry for outline planning, so that we at least had a right to build. Another two years had passed by this time, but we won that one too. We put plans in for a house, but that was refused. We did all sorts of modifications, but they were all refused. We had another two years of messing about, so went for another public inquiry, and as I'd seen the barrister work on the first two, I reckoned I could do it myself, so I did, and won. What was so bad was that the inquiry inspector passed the very first plans that I'd put in, so we'd been messing about for two years for nothing. Altogether ten years had passed since I first went to council and said I wished to build a house beside the river. That's not really the end of it, as Scott to whom I'd given the land so that he could live there and adjust the sluices when necessary, also had to fight at a public inquiry to get the planning permission to build a house. The council still didn't have enough knowledge to win, so with my help Scott won that. We really kicked their asses, but it cost me a lot of money. It doesn't seem right that you should lose out fighting for your rights. If you win... You must have been right, so the council should pay the bills, I reckon. It took a lot of work to create a good mixed fishery, with the many different species including trout and salmon. Probably from floodings over the years we also have carp, bream and rudd. There were even some golden ore for a few years back. Intruders from stockings upstream have rainbows, no doubt escapees, also blue rainbows and brook trout. The coarse fish are roach, dace, perch, pike eels, and along with the carp already mentioned, there's a ghost carp and a koi-type carp. Of course, there were the smaller species, gudgeon, loach, minnows, and I think I saw a stickleback once. If I searched among big stones or rocks, I expect among the loach there would be bullheads. Probably some of the work we did on the fishery wouldn't be approved by the EA, 
But as someone wrote in a recent book that this fishery is probably the best mixed fishery in the south of England, it can't be too bad. Doubtless the AA do some sterling work in some areas of conservation, but I think they fail in some ways regarding controlling the exploitation of the water resource. Their predecessors had already allowed commercial fish farms too much scope. Also, crest farms and abstractors had not got to grips with the obstructions to migratory fish, and so on and so on and so on. The field of operation of the EA is too large. Back when it was the NRA, they were mainly concerned with our nation's waters, Scotland accepted, I believe, and as they had powers and were beginning to learn, some of their officers realised their failings and were making a noise and may have had some effect on problems as they gained knowledge. With my cynical outlook on authorities and the water industry and the fish farming industry, I have the feeling that they were getting worried and so the EA came into existence. That reduced the NA from a powerful tool that could have eventually done some good to be incorporated within the EA, consequently becoming a very small cog in a damn great wheel. And of course, our governments have never looked upon angling with much favour, and so there's never been enough money for fisheries, and any will to change things appears to me to be non-existent. I've already said that I disagree with the EA regarding retaining the integrity of salmon stocks where their numbers are reduced to danger levels. But whether or not keeping stocks genetically pure should apply to coarse fish, I'm not sure. And although I'm not happy about the problems caused by salmon farming for consumption, farming salmon to help the revival of salmon rivers could be a good thing, but probably useless unless on a grand scale and where sea trout have had a drastic reduction of fish running rivers, a breeding program might also help them as long as the cause of their reduction is sorted. We know the reasons for some of the problems, breeding trout and salmon for the table, not for the rivers, and they should be shut down if we really wish to cure some eels, but that just ain't going to happen. Consequently, with all the problems for migratory fish, it doesn't look good down south for sure. But I guess they will survive in the north of the British Isles where industry is not too big a problem. But who knows what intensive farming will do when it will have to increase food production. I'm back to the increase in the human population of this tiny world. At one time I was quite vitriolic about the commercial fish farming industry causing a great many problems for the rivers upon which they base their enterprises. Some of this must have been read elsewhere than here, as I got a letter from a gentleman in New Zealand requesting information about the damage they caused. The New Zealand government wanted to allow fish farming in their rivers, but the New Zealand Federation of Anglers in that country were fighting against it. Although none of the facts that I had researched seemed to have any effect here, I sent him a massive amount of information about the detrimental effects the rivers caused by the fish farming industry, and I have a letter in my files telling me that the information I sent helped enormously to defeat their government. There's no commercial fish farming in the rivers of New Zealand. Although the gentleman who wrote me, a high-up member of a major angling association, has now passed on, many years ago, when John Goddard and I went to New Zealand fishing, he insisted on picking us up at the airport and showing us around the city of Auckland. He also wanted me to meet his scientist friend to discuss pheromones, 
but we just didn't have the time as we were soon due to get to our final destination in a little plane. Based on the research I've done for this interview, one aspect of your angling I know very little about is the salt water side. It started because we wished to fish all year if possible, and as I had more time available during the close season, as we didn't open on Sundays then, as well as the game fish, we wanted to catch all sorts everywhere, and that included the sea, with the added attraction that there were some bloody great things to catch in salt water. Once I'd become established and owned part of the business, I suggested to my partner that we have a week off during the close season, and that was nearly always a sea fishing holiday. When I was asked to show films to clubs by the Irish Tourist Board, Board Falte, that worked great as we could use that week for a free holiday fishing in Ireland to give us the knowledge to chat about Irish sea fishing at these shows. Like other fishing persuasions, sea angling has deteriorated around our shores. Inshore trawling, illegal fishing, and years ago I was told that commercial fishermen had evolved a means of netting wrecks and rocky outcrops, thus messing them up and there's damage by some types of trawl at the seabed and beam trawling. On the good side, from an angler's point of view, so much has opened up for many of us due to fairly cheap travel and good wages, so that the ordinary working man can take advantage of it if they wish. Who would have thought when I was young that shark fishing and giant skate fishing, for example, would be available to all around our islands, or travelling abroad to fish for pelagic species, the marlins, tuna and tarpon, and so many more species that at one time was only available to the rich. Kay and I have taken advantage of all of this, especially since we retired, and we've been abroad fishing many, many, many times, catching so many fishes. Kay had 20 years of retirement, and I've had 27 years. Even long before that, when we went to Ireland, we caught the large common and white skate, sharks and tope, and smaller species, and aboard the mighty tarpon, several species of sharks, tuna, sailfish, and three species of marlin. We've caught several fish species topping a couple of hundred pounds, and a couple up to a possible five hundred pounds, but they were estimates from boat skippers, except where they could take measurements, such as sturgeon, or the side of the boat for length. But the weights of our sturgeon and blue marlin, for example, fish that can reach 15 or 1600 pounds, although big to us, are only small compared to their top weights. I always used to say about a two or three hundred pounder. Really, it's still in its nappies. One Brit I know, though, got an 800 pound sturgeon for her throw. But we were happy with what we caught, as we caught plenty. Certainly been a great life. Perhaps I should mention when Kay and the skipper were killing themselves laughing, because John Copperjohn and I were both conger fishing. Kay was fishing for Pollock, but we both had one on at the same time. I was one side of the boat, he was the other. And as I started to pump and really pull, his rod went down, and when he did the same, my rod went down. And of course, Kay and the skipper, as I say, were killing themselves laughing because they realised what had happened. We'd both got the wrong fish and it must have been under some obstruction, and the line was going back and forth around that. So, of course, as soon as I realised what was happening, I let it go slack, and he pumped up a 45-pound conger. But they did have a laugh over that. Oh, well, anyway, I think our government, though, 
around our shores, we should have done the same as Iceland, put a 200-mile limit down the middle of the channel, of course. I don't know whether there's much to look forward to for sea anglers of the future. Actually, you, Phil, could probably <laughs> talk more about that than I could about the future of sea angling because I've almost given that up. But conservation measures can be tried, but there will always be the problems of foreign boat and illegal fishing, especially with Ireland. And if global warming is a fact to us, the human race, though I'm doubtful as there are so many factors involved, but if it is a fact, how will that affect the oceans? Again, I will blame the successes of the human race in technology, medical marvellous for survival, and therefore an ever-increasing population as being the biggest problem at the seas of the world. It's the recipient of our various wastes. We will probably be able to farm almost anything in the future, but not if the seas or fresh waters are too polluted. When I interviewed Plymouth-based sea angler and journalist Mike Millman, looking at, amongst other things, those heady days of the 1960s and 70s, when big catches, huge specimens and national records were an almost weekly occurrence, reflecting on that particular time and comparing it to the present, he said, it's gone. But thankfully, we had the best of it. Oh, well, <laughs> no doubt about that. I mean, you could still go out and catch cod in the winter off the shore and that sort of thing, and coddling and bass and stuff. I mean, you can still do it, but nowhere as easily as then. I remember when I was a kiddie, I say kiddie, what would I have been? I don't know, um, about 16, 17, eight, no, not 17, it wouldn't have been that old because I was in hospital then, but anyway, it's 16 and... We, we'd go down to the, um, my aunt of mine would occasionally take me to somewhere like Clacton or somewhere for a little holiday, a week's holiday and some cheap boarding house. But I would go and with her and she'd come with me and take a couple of deck chairs off the pile and put them on the beach and I'd chuck out with a little spinning rod as far as I could and I could get local rag from around some gentleman I was told where to go around the corner who dug these things and for a few bob we could get to a few coppers or something I, you could get these baits and sling out and we caught checkers you know small bass and um plenty of um small place and stuff and uh, nothing big but up to a couple of pounds or so it was great fishing and i'm told that that sort of would be very difficult to do things like that now so you know our low in inshore fishing's gone to pot a bit in fact, I've got a friend who's been trying to catch a tote off the beach. Now, where's he live? Somewhere around Portsmouth area, I think. And he hadn't managed it yet. He had apparently, going back a few years, they did catch quite a few tope along though, the beach there. I think they still get smoothies, though. That's about all from me, sir, on that. So as a final observation, then, what do you think the future holds? <laughs> That's a bloody silly question to ask somebody of 85. What it holds the future holds for me is death. <laughs> but for angling, I really don't know. I mean, looking at it as sort of without knowing, I mean, one doesn't know how the world's going to go, but looking at it from my present position or perspective, it doesn't look very good. It really doesn't. And I just keep coming back to the same thing because there's just too many of us. And we need water, and we need food. And as we go round the world like parasites in a culture dish, gradually consuming the world, 
I cannot see that angling is going to survive. Fish might survive as food, but I can't see angling's going to really survive. Plus, there's also this business with youngsters. Youngsters have it put on a plate for them, and some of them seem to take it up. But all the youngsters I see now, all they want to do, if they don't want to play football, all they want to do is press buttons with their uh, modern technological tools. Well, is that going to get better? I don't know. I really don't. But I don't think it looks very good, frankly. That's what we like. A good optimistic note to end on. But you're right, it doesn't look good for fish numbers. And nor does it look good for angling generally in terms of recruitment to fill our boots after we've gone. And good old Mike Millman was right too. We probably have seen the best of it, which is perhaps the only consolation for growing old. 